Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, I am pleased to have with me Mr. Michael Faby. He is a author and journalist, most known for his first book, Crash Back, which chronicled the power clash between U.S. and China. He is also a journalist who's written on military and naval affairs for many years, about 30 years, in Defense News, Chains, and Aviation Week. I have him on the show today. We've known each other for about 20 years, and he is coming out with a new book entitled Heavy Metal, The Hard Days and Nights of the Shipyard Workers Who Build America's Supercarriers. It's a fantastic book, and wanted to bring him on the show to talk a little bit about it, and we will provide links on our website for how to purchase a copy of the book that I highly recommend. So with that, Mike, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We'll dive right into the book a little bit, but you know, just to kind of set the stage, when we talk a lot about you know military affairs, we oftentimes talk about the technology, the capability, how it works, how what you do with it in the field. We oftentimes forget about the people behind it that make the system, that make the platform. And in the case of these supercarriers, it's 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 a, basically an entire city that comes together to build one platform, one supercarrier. And in this case, the story chronicles the the building of the USS John F. Kennedy. So to kind of set the scene a little bit, and you do a great job at the beginning of the book, kind of talking about the town of Newport News shipbuilding. What inspired you in looking at that town to write the book? And and, and what do you want the readers to know about? This is, this is what it's like to build one of these massive supercarriers. Yeah, you put it just right there. It's uh, basically a city, a yard within a city, and building a floating city. It also includes nuclear power plants, an airport, I mean, housing for 5,000 people. So it's it's an amazing undertaking. And I'd have to go back to the very beginning of, of my reporting career, 30-some years ago, and I went down for a job interview at the local newspaper there, Daily Press, which is located Newport News, basically right down the road from a yard. And while I was down there, I was driving around, um, getting a feel of the city. And I uh, haven't grown up in Philly. I had a fairly good idea what a cityscape looks like and everything like that. So nothing like that would really kind of like, wow, until I went down the street there, you know, going down by Warwick and everything. And all of a sudden, I see this, like, coming up from, like, the, the port side area, this huge, you know, the iconic silhouette of a carrier. And just made me stop. I mean, I'm just not seeing a carrier that close before. And just see it, like, parked there, basically, right by the side of the river. Like, what is that? You know? And then, you know, realize, well, they build that here. And, like, how do they do that? I was just, like, just absolutely just amazed at this whole cityscape. And you had these people here building it. And I just, ever since then, I was just 
just mesmerized by the idea of they could do that. And I want to find out more about that. I want to find out how they did that. And hadn't grown up in a kind of a blue collar type of neighborhood. I had that kind of feel within me. I kind of really relate to those kind of folks. And I just wanted to know more about that. So I, you know, eventually uh, years later, well, I'm covering a yard for the local paper uh, and got to know these people and really got an idea of, it's not just an amazing job or amazing life. It's an amazing mindset of what they do. And it brings together such a diverse group of people, different skills, different crafts, different backgrounds. You go into people coming from different parts of the country that have to come into Newport News for the almost the duration of the building of the, one of these ships. And it's, it's, it's a clash of, of just about every element you can think of. And it Supposed to all work right off the bat with no mistakes, no short, you know, no shortfalls, to get this supercarrier built. Which, of course, that doesn't happen. But it's really about the people behind building this that that really kind of makes this story uh, very compelling. Again, you hit on something that's that's really key about this is that I'll picture a town, a, a small city with thirty thousand people. Within that, you're going to have people from all different backgrounds, whether it's you know their politics, whether it's their religious, you know. Thoughts. I mean, everything like that. And that, and they have that in that yard. They really do. And they come in there and different. I mean, basically every skin color, every kind of belief you could imagine, they basically have to leave it all at the gate. When they come in there, they basically have to focus on, on two, three major things to go in that yard. One is to do their job right. Why? Because not only does you know, the nation depends on that. But you got 5,000 sellers whose lives are going to depend on that carrier working, you know. The second is their own lives. I mean, this is the kind of place where your head has to be on a swivel. One wrong move could lose life or limb. And the third thing, just as important as the second, is their workmates. I can't tell you, no matter what their, their partisan differences elsewhere, when they are out on that waterfront, they all look out for one another in, in a way that is just, you know, it's it's truly inspiring in a way. It's something almost like, well, if they can do that, American can do anything. It really is that kind of feeling. We talk about culture with the warfighter and the services instilling culture, and that. But we oftentimes like stop at at the warfighter. But the, that culture is actually goes all the way down to those who are building the systems, and and maybe even started by that that culture that sets in from the service leadership in this case, the Navy on down to all the workers that are putting this together. That's where the culture actually starts to bake into these individual platforms that then have to come together and for naval power. As the uh, first command officer of the Kennedy, Captain Todd Cherry, calls Han Cherry Mazzano, said he wants something was baked into the steel of the carrier, baked into basically DNA, and that's exactly what this is. This is something um, that on both sides, that is on the shipbuilding side and the Navy side, it goes back even centuries, you know, of this whole idea of from the very beginning, from that keel up and from those first sailors and those plankers coming in of basically creating something that is going to, to last and serve this country and just kind of like be this icon that is going to be in so many different ways. Yeah, I, I had an opportunity to be on the carrier a number of years ago, and it's just an astounding, I mean, it's such a huge platform that it's almost like a quarter mile long, I think, uh, about that. I, and I don't know all the dimensions of this, but about a quarter mile long, like 100,000 ton displacement, stuff like that. And and you're just on there, and you're just thinking, like, it started from somewhere, and this is the story of where it starts. So 
so this this one takes a particular look at the USS John F. Kennedy, and which is a CVN-79, and it's the second carrier in the Gerald Ford class, uh, the first one being USS Gerald Ford, and that was, I think, commissioned just a few years ago. And the story of the Kennedy, of the CVN-79, is really intertwined with the first carrier, the problems, the successes, and so forth. So, you know, at the start, could you talk a little bit about the the, the inception of the John F. Kennedy, the CVN-79, and where it was in the timeline with the, the, the Ford-class carrier coming out and kind of some of the challenges and obstacles that it faced right out of the gate? Yeah. Even though you want to start with the Kennedy, you really do have to start with the Ford. The Ford was coming this whole brand-new carrier, and because of decisions were made back in when Rumsfeld— was the Secretary of Defense, they decided to put all these tech, new technologies on the ship, 23 of them. I mean, it was supposed to be something that was supposed to go over a whole, like, four or five different carriers. And so we're going to say, oh, I'm going to put them all in one carrier. And now, by the way, since what's happened to Ford, they said no more than two. Gives you an idea of what they were trying to do from the beginning. And as a result, they just had issues with supply chain, issues with development of some of these key technologies and everything like that going down the line. Some of this technology had nothing to do with the shipyard. I mean, your, the new catapult system was developed by General Atomics, things like that. So because of the delays and everything with the Ford, because the cost was so much greater than was anticipated, especially originally because of the decisions that were made administrations ago, there were, all eyes were on the Kennedy. They were like, you basically, you have to get the ship right. If you get this ship right, there's a good chance you can get a two-carrier deal, which for your like Newport News, I mean, that's guaranteed work and workforce decades. That's a huge deal in a place not like Newport News, but all of Tidewater, you know, that whole region down in, in that southeast part of Virginia. It, if you mess this up, we don't know where the carrier program is going to go. And that's what they were on. That's the kind of gun they were under. And oh, by the way, we're going to just make it a little more interesting for you. We want that ship done with basically about 15% less of a workforce, as they call man hours. So that's what, the, that's what they were under going out to do that. Um, and they just came up a whole different way of looking at this. They used the shipbuilding expertise that Newport News has going way back, but they brought in these new digital kind of procedures, if you will, digital technologies to help plan and actually even build the ship. And so that really kind of helped ramp up things, get things going in the right way. It was still difficult, especially, uh, I'll tell you, they were going to have a real tough time getting that done, and then COVID hit. And it was an even tougher time after that. I mean, as someone on the yard uh, put to me, you can't zoom a weld, you know, so they had to build a carrier during COVID. And, and a couple of workers, almost more than a couple, but a couple we talked to in the book, they almost died, you know. So it, it was a very tough undertaking. And certainly with with something like a carrier, you know, you know in the last episode we were talking about the congressional defense budget and, and uh, you know, how hard it is to find out what DOD is spending on EW because it's all over the place. But with a carrier, it's very easy to see where the money's going and the, how long it's taking. And so – you put all these obstacles on one, or all these challenges, let's call them, on one side, and then you put it on a pedestal on the other, where it's very easy to see. It's it's amazing we can even actually get to that point, particularly in in, in the environments that we have to make these decisions. But it's it's interesting how 
what you know, what you, you said is it really started back with some conversations with from so and it cuts across so many administrations. Why did they think that they could make these leap all these leap ahead efforts? Like, hey, we're gonna do this totally different from anything we've actually had experience before, and it's gonna be successful. I mean, like usually those types of challenges do go unmet just in business. So what made them think or how did that sit with Newport News and 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 with the the workers and how how did how did the I mean how did they even reach this point where like yeah this would it seems destined to to have trouble? It's actually one real simple answer to that. We won the Cold War. I mean that was it. That was the whole feeling was we won the Cold War. There's no one out there we have to worry about right now, and so we can take the chances instead of being evolutionary. We could be revolutionary. We could take a chance because there's no one we have to worry about. And that was the thinking. That was the whole line of thinking. And I don't know if that would have worked. It certainly had a chance of working better than it did. Newport News set up, you know, if you want us to build a carrier, as long as you provide the systems, we can build a carrier. But then you had 9-11 happen. And that kind of like switched everything off. A lot of resources went away and people start eyeing different things differently, like carrier costs. But that's what it really came down to. We won the Cold War. They could ch- take a chance on being revolutionary. Why not? If it takes a little longer, costs a little more, oh, well, no big deal. And I think there was even some thought, and if it does, what do we need carriers for anyway? Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, 
they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is in fact science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can Connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. Now, going from the start of the Gerald Ford to now through the Kennedy, you're talking uh, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden administrations. It's quite a sea change in terms of leadership, no matter how you're looking at it. How did that affect the development of the Ford leading into the Kennedy? And then, of course, and then we'll get more into talking about the Kennedy. I would say at the presidential level, it really didn't affect so much. There were a couple of administrative attempts in budgets, for example, to say, oh, you know what? We're not going to do with the big overhauls for the former class and the mid class carriers. No one was talking about really taking a Ford out, for example, or cutting down on the Ford carrier system going forward. They were talking more about, let's cut down the carrier fleet size by like taking down the MS carrier or anything like that. Um, and every time that would happen, there would be a huge meeting with all the members of Congress, and then it would go away because the carrier is the best politically engineered program ever invented. It's, it's in like 300 districts or it, something. depends on how you it, cut yeah, it. You know. Across like almost, I think it's 47 states. It's just absolutely, no one's going to mess with the carrier that way unless you have something else that can, you know. Uh, the last attempt now, the last attempt that was made was during the Trump years. And they just said, again, we're going to take out the Truman. And that was such immediate backlash from that, that actually the administration that turned on itself and said, okay, we'll put it back in because, you know, we're going to fight. And uh, they were fighting themselves really because it was the administration's budget. But that's really where it's been at that level. The, the, at the presidential level, presidents like showing up for commissionings, you know, that kind of thing, uh, christening sometimes. And, and, you know, there's nothing bigger than a carrier. So anyway, I think that's where it stands with that. And so, you know, with the outlook for the Kennedy and then obviously the Ford, these two carriers really will or do dictate kind of the future of the U.S. carrier fleet, whether, you know, how many more we can build, how long to keep the legacy uh, carriers in the fleet and so forth. So let, let's talk a little bit about the Kennedy. Could you walk us, I mean, basically through the book, you know, could you walk us through like what were the major phases of the build that you can say these are key milestones that were like significant in the production of the Kennedy that come out in the book in terms of like, here's, take these two, three, four periods of time. And that's exactly how you see the carrier today. Yeah. So the, the first few years, and you say you're going back um, right now, 11 years ago, and that's where they get what they call long lead contracts, not to bore everyone, but it's like, we really want to make sure this carrier stays in a budget somehow. So we're going to give you some money to order like steel. You know, and some of the really big steel components, like a big order of uh, machinery and stuff like that. You know, so to get some stuff into the yard, kind of 
put your placeholder in there and everything, and everything like that. And they were doing that for years. They even had the first steel cut um, back around that time. But the first real Kennedy contract wasn't until 2015. Master first time, you know, it was like three point whatever, I think 3.8 billion, I think is what it was somewhere around there. And that's the first time they could actually, you know, say, all right, by that time, I forget the percentage rate off the top of my head, but I think it was somewhere around 15, 20% of the assemblies, as they put there, were already done. And I should explain what assembly is. So you don't have an assembly line for carriers. So you don't have like 20 carriers racked up, but you do have assembly line approach in different parts of a carrier is basically a bunch of metal compartments put together with a lot of airspace between them. And so these compartments, there's only like 2,000 of them all over the ship at different sizes. And so in each in each one of those has to be, the piping has to be done, the electrical conduits have to be put in there and everything like that. So they'll have to do it by compartment by compartment. So at the sub-level, you have to kind of go down and build those sub-levels piece by piece by piece and put together almost like picture a Lego set and you're putting together this little Lego like part over here. Like that's an arm. We're going to put together the arm part over here. We're going to put together another arm and over here the leg. And then eventually you put them all together. Same thing with carrier except for carrier goes from the bottom up and the inside out. After 2015, you'll have super lifts become the big milestones. For example, you have a super lift where you're putting big things as the bow. For the bow super lift is a huge part of it. It's a big part of it. Uh, one of the biggest things, of course, when I put what they call the island, that's that kind of iconic silhouette thing you get with the radars and everything on it. When they lift that up and the thing looks as one of the workers said, like it was flying through space when the gantry crane puts on top of the carrier. That's a huge big deal. Then the next, probably the really big thing after that will be the flooding and the launch. The flooding of the dry dock. I mean, you know, this carrier sits in this dock. So you something the size of the Statue of Liberty sitting right there. And, you know, it's sitting there in this dry dock and then to flood it to make sure that the thing will actually, you know, float in water, basically. And it's all watertight. And then the, the christening and then the launch will be the big things. That just happened a couple of years ago. And now the next big thing for, for the carrier will be when they commission a ship. But even before that, right now, what they're doing is a bunch of little what they call light-offs. So they're checking electrical systems all about the ship because the ship's been launched. It's sitting in another part of the yard. It floats, you know, so it's like a ship. But now you have to go through and make sure all the systems work like they're supposed to. So it's still a couple of years from even seeing any sort of operational yes. uh, capacity. Absolutely. So. So you've written a lot on EW over the years and techno- advanced technology. So I want to talk a little bit about the weapon systems and the sensor systems on the aircraft carrier. What makes this one or the Gerald Ford class aircraft carrier from a weapons sensor perspective so much better or advanced than previous carriers? And interestingly enough, part of what makes it different actually gets into an EW aspect of it um, from a defensive side um, that has been... I don't know if I call it worrying, but it's, it's been noted and addressed. So the carrier has a, a couple of major different systems right off the bat. One is the way it launches and recovery aircrafts. The first is the EMOS electronic magnetic launch system. And basically, instead of a hydraulic system, that kind of gets a generator, revs up a bunch of pressure and shoots out like popping of a cork and everything like that. Instead, it kind of you know, shoots the electronic pulses down brings the aircraft to shoot it off the end of the aircraft that way. And so with that, you don't have all those big, heavy hydraulic systems. You don't have the maintenance issues or anything like that. And it's easier to maintain. 
or supposed to be. We're, before it's going to be out there, we'll see if that comes true, but that's the whole idea of it. And it's going to be less costly to maintain. It's a lot lighter than the big hydraulic systems. On the recover system, same thing. You Instead of some of the big hydraulic systems there, you have these twister systems. And again, it, there's a lot of let, electronics in there. So those are the, the two big major systems on this. Um, it's got a new radar system. It's, it's going to be very... I want to say very cool because that doesn't get anything, but it's, but it is but it is a system that's going to be more effective for carrier operations. Let's put it that way. Um, you have a whole new electronic system, grid system, if you will, on there that gives the carrier an awful lot more power margin than you ever had before, and this will make it possible to put electronic weapons on a carrier, a laser system, things like that, and that's. You know, to so greater self-defense. And finally, uh, one of the bigger systems is the elevators. Again, it used to be all hydraulics. Well, they took the same kind of launch system, but they turned it instead of horizontal, it's vertical, and it goes through the decks. And it has to lift up whole different, you know, deck or floor levels as it goes up and down, carrying all major weapons from deep in the ship and all the way up. As a result of all these electronic systems, you now have a whole different electronic signature four to four than you had for Nimbus class. And this is one of the things that's been out there is will the Ford then a bigger target because they'll know it is the Ford. But some say, well, look, we already have protected Nimbus class carriers, you know, with different kinds of electronic dampening and all kinds of things like that. And all puts the whole later approach. But it's something that they've been addressing and look at. And also you have these electronic systems kind of I don't want to say they're interfering with each other, but they definitely have an impact on each other. And there's been some noting of that, too, in, in recent government reports of, like, they're not sure exactly how that's going to be with carrier operations day in and day out. And, and, and that's one of the hard things when you're building a system over the course of a decade and technology is constantly changing. And no matter what type of electronics you're going to put on, an, on a system like this, you're going to be facing questions of whether or not it makes sense today or, or, or there's challenges. But, you know, one of the things that I think that came out, is, if everything goes as planned here on out, you know, one of the things it seems to do is give the Navy a lot more flexibility to maybe adapt its capability during its lifetime. As you mentioned, directed energy and other uh, other technologies start to kind of come on the, come up from the horizon. Maybe there's an opportunity then to affect that, you know, what what the carrier can do whereas the older classes were kind of pretty much set because of size, weight, power issues. And they, they, they basically had to do what they were built to do, and that was it. So there's, I, I like the, the flexibility aspect. Is, is that an accurate read? It is. And, and it actually gets down to the operational raison d'etre. You know, the, the reason for being a carrier is, is to carry aircraft. And one thing with the new EMOL system is that you can dial it up and dial it down depending on power you need to get different systems off. And this will make it possible to put different aircraft carrier on, for example, smaller UAVs in the future. Right now, you're kind of stuck at a a rather narrow margin. And that narrow margin for the current air wing is fine. I mean, you're you're launching Super Hornets, you know, and and things like that. So you don't necessarily need that kind of dial up and dial down, but the future air wing that they're envisioning, you probably will. In fact, you definitely will. And this allows you to do that. So the very aircraft that the carrier will be carrying out into future conflicts, this will give it a little bit, 
know, a, a kind of like, we're not sure what that carrier has, which is, you know, could change the calculus for whoever's out there. You mentioned that uh, in the future, uh, UAVs, I mean, direct energy, swarming offensive type of uh, operations, uh, a lot of this is geared towards China. Obviously, this is kind of the big major, at least from a naval perspective, really kind of on the forefront of the Navy's mind in terms of what they're preparing for. To kind of segue into your previous book, Crashback, which is looking at the power struggle between uh, U.S. and China, when you think of the aircraft carrier, you think, like, you talk, we talk about power projection. And I don't think that there's a better example of power projection than a carrier or any naval vessel, but especially a carrier off the coast or near an adversary and, and, and their territory. So could you talk about, like, you know, kind of dialing into your previous book, Crashback, but also this, how this new aircraft carrier, this this new representation of naval power in the Pacific eventually really leads to U.S. power projection. And what does that mean for the U.S. and the Navy? Yeah, take the, the first part first, which is the whole idea of power projection. I mean, you're right. Nothing says we're here like American aircraft carrier silhouette over the horizon. That is just the be all end all. And especially in the Western Pacific. Western Pacific is a place where appearance is everything. And the very fact that you'd be out there with the carrier says an awful lot. It, it just does. I mean, that's where our partners like to see, the allies like to see, China hates to see. Space all saber rattling, China's not ready, at least not now, not for the very foreseeable future, to do anything about an American aircraft carrier. I mean, it wouldn't go off the coast of Shanghai. But in Taiwan Strait, for example, they're, they're going to raise a big fuss, but that's about it. I kind of call it message warfare, if you will. The whole idea of, look, these are national waters. We had the right to be here, and carriers go out there, and, they, and that's what they do. And so that carrier presence in that part of the world is just key to making sure that we keep our presence there, which is key to keeping trade lanes open, which is key to making sure you get $200 laptops in Walmart, all that stuff. That is that is what is key. It's not just a military power. It's economic. It powers freedom. It's everything. And, and the carrier plays a central role in that. Our Navy is designed to beat any other Navy. I mean, that's, but it's built to make sure that American can keep its trade lane opens for American commerce to take place. That's what it's built for. That's what it was built originally to do, and that's what it still does now. You know, so, and with the, with the Ford class, I mean, first of all, and, and this is nothing to laugh about or, or just overlook, but the very fact that they're finding these cheaper ways to build a carrier than before because of the way they're actually doing the build part of it, that's a big deal. They're, they're a lot more affordable. The fact that you can have different kinds of aircraft going on with a carrier, again, it's a big deal. The fact that, we didn't get into this earlier, but they have fewer sailors now aboard the ship. Roughly, I think it's like about 50 less sailors, right around there, certain numbers that we worked out. But that's a huge deal in keeping that ship out there, especially in the Western Pacific, where that, you know, a carrier goes after huge distances, so you want to be able to make the rounds, so to speak. You want to be make the patrols to get around. And again, that's a huge difference. And the fact that you might have these power margins to put, like, some kind of electronic warfare defense system and weaponry on the ship is a big deal as you go out into those areas and you want to, you know, that kind of sense that the carrier can take care of itself 
as well as within the carrier strike group because no carriers can go past the carrier strike group. So, so we're basically now two ships into this new class. You know, what the, a lot of organizational challenges, decision making challenges, leadership, so forth. What are some of the lessons learned after this? Now the USS Kennedy that you hope we have learned as we and we proceed with what will be the third or and more carrier. What are some of the lessons that we need to learn or you hope we've learned through this? First of all, uh, nothing is as easy as it seems. <laughs> I mean, you know, that was, uh, I mean, that just became apparent as, as they were going through all this process. The second thing is that while the, the new digital way of looking at shipbuilding is very important, you cannot overlook in any way, shape, or form, the expertise that comes from what they call master shipbuilders, people of decades of shipbuilding experience, who basically, when they eyed the design of the Ford, even in electronic schematics, said, yeah, that's not going to work that way. And they weren't paying attention to it, and it had to go back and, and, and you know redesign certain things because of it. So you know, I think that's, that's one of some of the key stuff that you really have to look at. And the other, quite honestly, is that this workforce that you have in Newport News is something that really, really needs to be taken care of. You know, this is if you if you want to continue to have build these ships, and they also have you know our submarines. You know, along with the, the yard up in Grotney, the uh, electric boat. But if we want to keep these this navy, then we have to make sure that that workforce, given this just due. You know, I think that's really important too. When we've done some work on BRAC in the past, you know, one of the things we talk about is this intellectual and professional capital that builds up in these centers. And the realization that once it leaves, I mean, these are not, these are people that will go to where they can get jobs. So, and once they leave, they're not coming back. It's not something that you can just pick up and like, oh, let's just move it to this part of the country. You have to take care of that because once you lose it, you lose it. It's gone. I think that's came out very, very clearly in the book. I, I mean, I would say everyone talks about kind of, I don't know, this bygone era, these forgotten things of the blue-collar worker, you know, and everything like that. That doesn't really exist anymore. But down in Newport News, it does exist. And it's an amazing thing to see that, that basically these it's kind of American muscle, taking American steel, and, and building, you know, this American worship. This is, this that's a whole, a whole main in America thing is right there. Just, the whole idea of this American can do. I mean— when you look at some of the things they've had to work through, some of the challenges, hurdles, and obstacles, it is almost, in the true definition of the word, amazing that they get this job done the way they do. And again, risking it so much and when, when they go through and do that. Is there anything else that you think the the listener or the and the future reader of the book, really you really want to key their interest into or attention to? Yeah. And this is kind of a, a harking out to the, a, a real big, cultural thing going right now that mood top guns come out and it's a huge hit everywhere. What I want to draw attention to is, you know what, what this book has is the real top guns. First on the Navy side, I mean, you've got the people who are actually up doing that Tom Cruise stuff. They did it for real. And now they're down there basically helping design and create these carriers that go out to sea and everything like that. But it's also the top guns in this case are the master shipbuilders. There would be no Maverick. There would be no Top Gun. There would be none of that if it wasn't for these carriers being built this way. I mean, how you've got, you know, right now, you've got the Nimitz out there, basically a Vietnam War era ship out there 
doing this work as it has been doing. You know, when we had the the three carriers off the coast of Japan recently uh, when Trump was president, I mean, Nemesis is one of those out there. And so for decades, how many are things we up there that operate like this for decades that go off on, on war, that are floating cities with nuclear power plants, with hospital services, you know, a housing development, basically a floating fort, if you will, floating Navy base. This is what these men and women do, these steel workers, these shipbuilders do. I mean, they are the, re- they are the real kind of top guns, if you will, of, of their craft going out and doing this. So you can have a Maverick and have a top gun. You can have an American Navy. And uh, we, we can enjoy, you know, the kind of things we do over here. Well, thank you so much for taking time to join me. Uh, again, the book is called Heavy Metal, The Hard Days and Nights of the Shipyard Workers Who Built America's Supercarriers. It's from HarperCollins. It was released yesterday, June 14th. And so we will put a link on AOC site, how to get it, but obviously it's available online as well. But uh, I, I encourage our, our listeners to, to pick up a copy. It's a great insight into something that I don't think we really talk about enough. And, and so I really appreciate having you on the show to, to, to share it with us. Anytime I get the word about these men and women doing this job and tell their stories, I'm happy to do it. Thank you very much. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, Mike Faby, for joining me here to talk about his new book, Heavy Metal. As always, I'd like to draw your attention to our sister podcast, The History of Crows, that chronicles the history of electromagnetic warfare from the earliest inventors to the latest operations. Also, we always like to hear from our listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve. So please visit our website at www.crows.org slash podcast, or leave a comment and rate us wherever you download your podcast. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.